Welcome to Dear Patriarchy, a series created in partnership between Indigenous Goddess Gang and Broken Boxes podcast. Through conversation, guest artists and activists will provide personal experiences and resource on ways to deconstruct patriarchy in our communities and move past its toxic practices in our larger social structuring. In this episode, we get into conversation with Queer Nature founders Pinar Sinopoulos Lloyd and Sophia So Sinopoulos Lloyd. Queer Nature is a Colorado-based project that creates a decolonially informed queer futurism through earth-based skills. Queer Nature envisions and implements ecological relationship as a vital and often overlooked part of healing and holing of populations who have been systematically silenced and marginalized, such as the LGBTQ2 population, and especially trans and queer people of color and two-spirit folks. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what type of work do you do and why? My name is Pinar Sinopoulos Lloyd. Um, I want to introduce my ancestors um, because those are the people that I come from. My matrilineage is Awanka from the Andes and as well as Chinese from Spanish enslavement in Peru in the 1700s. And my patrilineage is Turkish, which is actually where I grew up for about half of my childhood. And I also want to recognize and give space to uh, the creek that raised me, and their name is Hak Hapsua, um, and they're on Yavapai and Apache territory. And I consider them an ancestor of mine as well, um, and a deep, just a deep connection of a being who keeps me accountable in many ways. So I grew up in Turkey for until about the age of eight. And then I also uh, grew up in Ohlone territory in the so-called Bay Area of California, um, and now I live on Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute Territory in so-called Boulder, Colorado area. And I am um, a wilderness guide, an underworld guide in, as well, and um, as well as a co-founder of Queer Nature, which we're going to talk about in a moment, which involves a lot of my work as an ancestral skills practitioner and a mentor specifically for the LGBTQIA community and for the LGBT, or sorry, for the QT BIPOC community in particular as well. And one thing I also wanted to note too is um, that English is my second language. So if um, it takes me a moment to like find a word, that often happens to me. So I just want to normalize that of just like English as second language and that sometimes my mind has to take some space to find words and to make connections. Thank you. And so? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, my name is uh, Sophia, or so I also go by So as nickname, um, same last name as Pinar. And let's see, who am I? Where do I come from? Um, well, I, I really want to name here um, that I'm um, a white settler, um, and that's a big part of, like, sort of acknowledging that as a part of what 
our co-visionary partnership and our work together through queer nature and sort of the complementarity of our different identities. Um, although there are there are also similarities. Um, you know, my my mom is an immigrant from Greece, um, and so I'm a first generation on that side. And so I I do have a sort of bicultural identity that that informs this work and um and it just felt important to name that um in particular i i have sort of a strange journey to nature connection um you know i also identify as sort of a nature educator nature-based mentor in a lot of the work that i do and i actually came to that through shepherding which throughout college i worked as a seasonal shepherd during the summers um and in a way, at the time, it was sort of like this blind sort of curiosity or like geek geekery, I guess, because I was really interested in cheese making, actually. And um, like um, that whole art of fermentation and a big part of what I ended up realizing was that what drew me to shepherding was because a lot of my ancestors and people today in Greece and in the Eastern Mediterranean really rely on sheep for so many things. Sheep are such a foundational cornerstone to Mediterranean culture and life. And I think that a lot of, uh, just speaking for myself as a white person of European descent, a lot of times that sort of gets forgotten in uh, European culture. And it's like, oh, like, look at these other cultures that like have this these beautiful relationships with animals or with nature and 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 I'm I'm all for like also like admiring the badassery of that but I also like I also feel like there can be some unhealthy projections that white people can put onto specifically indigenous groups um that have you know these beautiful rich richer than we could really imagine in our own like you know from from because we're coming from this different cultural positionality and I don't know I feel like a big part of nature connection and becoming a wilderness guide and nature mentor to me is connected to sheep and to really exploring my own ancestral life ways that are earth-based which in that part of the world is really related to shepherding and uh, sheep and um, cheese (laughs) and uh, so I don't I just want to name that to yeah and Another question, what is the type of work I do? Well, I, I, I feel like I do lots of different things, but I do feel sort of like a naturalist at the fundamental level. Sort of a, I feel like a Buckminster Fuller's term scientist artist, like with a hyphen between the two words, really resonates for me because, you know, I, I was kind of in college, I studied the humanities, I studied religious studies, I was really interested in mysticism. But I also never really felt at home with a lot of, you know, religions, because I'm queer, and because there's not a lot of that history has been repressed in a lot of like, especially European cultures. And I feel like for me, naturalist studies are a kind of like eco mysticism. They're like a form of devotion, because you discover a lot, but you also discover how much you don't know. And you're also you're basically moving the mystery around. And it's like this game. And to share that with other people, and especially other queer people and women is like the greatest joy. It's just so delightful. And I could say more about it. But maybe we'll talk more about that when we talk more about queer nature. So let's get into queer nature. Um, Pinar, do you want to start by breaking it down? What what the project is, um, 
any anything you want to say to set to set up the work? Yeah, absolutely. I'll say the origin story of queer nature, uh, just a, a snippet of it. Um, essentially, I'll speak from my experience. Actually, that reminds me a bit of shepherding because the way that I got into nature connection was through shepherding as well. And it was through um, actually going and doing, essentially showing up for folks at Black Mesa and being asked to shepherd for an elder there, which was, this was probably about eight years ago at this point. And the um, the person who I was staying with, whose name I'm not going to share just for um, respect, is... Um, Essentially, she is this incredible weaver and incredible elder. And um, I would just notice her coming out of her Hogan and she would look at the tracks outside. It was really like chill. Like she was just like nothing, you know, like life was happening. This is her daily routine. And she would just look outside and look at the tracks outside and essentially look around the sheep corral to make sure like who was visiting, like the more than human community. And I was just super fascinated by like, I was inspired, maybe not fascinated is less, it doesn't feel as aligned, but I was really inspired by her and her incredible knowledge of place and relationship to place. And so when I would take the sheep out in the morning at sunrise um, and then come back right at sunset, I was out on the land for many hours by myself with the sheep and the one goat (laughs) and uh, and I would notice so many different tracks um, along the landscape and these different beautiful, resilient plants. And this was pretty much the the moment that really uh, culminated a lot of the um, inspiration in part for queer nature, as well as that was actually really informed by indigenous sovereignty um, and how to be accountable to like First Nations folks um, in their relationship to place. And also like the badass women out there, (laughs) like badass women elders. And essentially I started then looking into ancestral skills more and, you know, this uh, experience at or experiences at Black Mesa with this elder in particular really set the bar high, (laughs) high for me. And when I went to these ancestral skills uh, schools, workshops, they were very much dominated by um, white cis het men who were very able-bodied and I don't know if very able-bodied is actually the correct term, but just not aware of ableism, let's just say. And essentially a lot of what I experienced was that their relationship, or I don't even know if there was necessarily a relationship going on with the natural world at some of these places that I was studying at. And essentially just felt like another form of colonization of like, we're going to conquer nature, we're going to like, do this, you know, go outside and just be self reliant and like, Mm -hmm. you know, chop down this tree or whatever. I don't I don't even know how to relate to it. because I'm having a hard time sharing how it sounds, but uh, or what I felt, but it, it felt very much, you know, not only colonial and conquering, but also really patriarchal in the sense that it was very dominating and like um extractive and so i felt really icky in those places and um as especially as a gender queer person as a indigenous gender fluid person in particular i just didn't feel very seen and i'm very emotional and very proud of that (laughs) and um essentially i 
just didn't feel at place. And so I wanted to like reclaim these ancestral skills and didn't know where to do that necessarily in a good pl- in a good way. And so I just started to learn in these really toxic environments and started to learn how to adapt because that's how we survive. That's like the stories of survivance for, you know, indigenous folks and many other people of color and queer queer people as we learn how to adapt and those are our survival stories that don't get acknowledged so often. So as I harvested and learned these skills and with the intention of giving it back to people who don't feel safe in these environments, I ended up meeting So in this really beautiful way. And we actually met at a wilderness skills um, and nature connection community or through that community. And when we met, it was kind of this like really intense co-visionary encounter where we're like, there's a lot of responsibility here and like to create and it wasn't through words we weren't saying that but it was like the recognition of like oh my gosh like first of all I'm falling head over heels for you and there's so much that we need to like do in the world as you know co-visionary queers and like creatures because we both really identify with our queerness is way beyond like a human-centric perspective that you know queerness this is another tangent in some, and maybe we can go into this at another point that like the queer community can really hyper focus on the human world. And uh, which, you know, makes so much sense with all of our trauma as a community. But, you know, as we are place-based, we are originally place-based peoples and queerness is a place-based, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? It's a place-based like process of the earth, like queerness is an emergence of the earth. You know, and so when I saw that with in, with so and we recognized that, and we were like, okay, we need to make this space for people that like we never had, and um, so we started queer nature, and essentially now what we do is we're we collaborate a lot with different organizations. That's kind of one of the things that we really love about how we work is it's really inspired by ecological principles of like collaboration and yeah, just uplifting each other, uplifting different organizations and peoples. And so one of the places that we do a lot of our work is in real, in collaboration with women's wilderness in um, Boulder, Colorado. So we do something called the queer wilderness project there where we teach day long, mostly day long, Skillshares that are grant funded um, for the LGBTQIA community. So that's pretty much like our most consistent offering. And then we're also like some of the other stuff that we do too, again, in collaboration with other orgs, is that, you know, we last summer we co guided the Queer Youth Quest through the School of Lost Borders. And that was a nine day program for queer youth, 16 to 20 years old, that who came from all over the country and essentially um, created a community together that led to a three day and three nights wilderness solo is what it culminates to. Yeah. And then folks come back together and um, are like welcoming each other back in. And it's a really beautiful kind of yeah, specifically a rite of passage uh, that's queer specific. Yeah, so that's another thing that we've we do together as a project as well is like create um, queer specific rites of passage or help inform other rites of passage organizations of how to be inclusive 
to um, people who inhabit in between places um, that don't really like in particular uh, adhere to like the you know feminine and the masculine binary but also inhabit both all in between completely different out of the spectrum you know there's a lot of different ways of showing up yeah so maybe I'll just wrap it up with queer nature for right there and um, see if so wants to add anything yeah Hanar really hit on some themes so beautifully and and there's some things I feel I could add um and one thing, I guess, on the topic of sort of this alluring concept of futurism or like dreaming new futures into being. And I guess, I don't know, there's there's this kind of resonance that I see when I look at a lot of like, for example, my uh, Pinar's sibling, who's my sibling-in-law, I guess, who was a participant on the Youth Queer Quest um, a wonderful person and an artist and they are involved in creating art around animal human hybrids and I just know let's know you're on deviant art or online on tumblr and there's so much um there's so much of that type of dreaming going on among queer youth and among ourselves being you know recently graduated from queer youth into queer adulthood I guess not really sure when that happened but um but yeah, th- th- there's just sort of this longing that I sense to create new worlds or to create the conditions for our, our own belonging. And I see that impulse going on in our society and in the dreams of queer youth. And there's just this, it's just this impulse to create something new. And I feel like that, even though I know that might sound sort of abstract or like dreamlike I feel like it's a really big core I like if there's sort of this core or soul of queer nature that's part of it um and the other thing I wanted to say too about queer nature and this might be something that is kind of familiar to a lot of queer folks but I guess for folks who aren't as familiar um with the sort of the history of gay culture and queer culture in, you know, what is in the so-called United States. Um, Gay culture in some ways, especially I think for folks of European descent and a lot of other folks too, but that it was sort of, this culture in some ways was sort of piloted and and affected by a lot of structures around of imperialism and particularly like post-war culture and urban development. And what happened, I think, was just gay culture, to put it simply, kind of flourished in the cities, especially, you know, during and after World War Two, and also after sort of the Industrial Revolution, when people started going to work and being away from their homesteads, and then they would meet other guys in the streets after work, you know, and so there's this whole kind of tragic and also beautiful and raw history of gay and queer life that happened in the cities. And then there's also this tendency for us queer folks to go to the cities and to sort of flee our our rural areas um, and our, our small towns and villages. And that's like, that is totally understandable. It's like this, I see it as kind of this ecological principle of like, creatures go to where there's a larder, to where there's an abundance. And there has been an abundance in the cities and there still is. And it's it, it can be beautiful. And I think there can also be so much 
danger and toxicity there because of drinking culture and partying culture and getting into dangerous situations. And, you know, people get hurt, people get killed, you know, that's such a big thing right now with the murder of queer and trans women of color. And not that that doesn't happen in rural areas, but I think that's part of it is that there's been this fear of rural areas in queer culture. And it's like, I know when I was in middle school, that was when Matthew Shepard was murdered. And that was just like such a huge blow to my psyche that I don't think I even really fully processed at the time because that it was literally like the year that I first like fell in love with another girl or a, someone of my quote unquote same gender. And um, I think that just really affected our generation. And I, I think Pinar and I are part of this wider sort of counterculture or resurgence or something around like creating queer rural culture and not just queer rural culture, um, but also just strategies to feel like we can belong in wild spaces, in places where there's less people, places that might feel unsafe or that we might feel unprepared for, but to really give us the tools. Like there's something so beautiful about so-called survival skills um, in a queer container. And I use that term deliberately, partially because we actually kind of disagree with the term survival skills, but I think it can be useful to use it because, because it highlights that as queer people and other marginalized folks, we, like Pinar said, we have survival skills. Like we, we do have heightened situational awareness in certain social settings and political settings. And we do have to watch our backs. We do have to take a step back and assess when we enter a new space. And all those skills are so transferable to the world of outdoor you know, stuff like tracking and um, camouflage, stealth, naturalist studies, identifying things, like recognizing things, seeing, seeing what the relationships are between things that might be invisible. And that's also a big thing with trauma. A lot of trauma survivors are incredibly empathic and they can pick up on the smallest cues and they can attune to higher levels of detail than most people. And that person's a naturalist is what I would say. A naturalist, you know, maybe to yet to be or in training. Um, these people are so incredibly powerful and just creating a space for a lot of these things that we've named is incredibly, it's like being inside, like Pinar said, sort of this ancestral futurist fairy tale. And so I think I'll leave it at that for now. Working with queer nature, has it made you feel safer and more prepared to navigate urban spaces? And also, I really want you to expand upon what you mentioned earlier on in the beginning about queer identity being um, not only human-based, I guess. You know, that, that kind of concept you all touched on. So those two things kind of... Um, 
how has queer nature helped you to approach? Yeah, thank you. Since I'm a storytelling brain, <laughs> I have a storytelling <laughs> kind of brain, uh, I just want to share too that like, when I moved from uh, Turkey to the United States, um, I was actually pretty silent for like the first year or so of moving. And I didn't talk really Turkish or while well, I was learning English. And I just remember being really observant. Like I was the quiet kid watching everything, <laughs> like pretty much. And like, watching the like body language and how the body language of like so-called American quote-unquote body language like differed from Turkish. I also grew up again on Ohlone territory where there was actually a lot of different cultures, ethnicities, and races there. So I got to also observe that and the differences there in in, um, differentiation. And so I then realized that well, first of all, I felt pretty isolated because I was like, I'm the only quiet person really here. And then I started looking around and this is me as an eight year old. And I started to notice that the other creatures out there who were also observing with a lot of like um, detail were, you know, squirrels and birds and cats and, you know, also like trees and all these like more than human folks and this was like in the city like i was in like really urban places so you know there were like a lot of pigeons you know <laughs> too and pigeons are amazing so i started to like have a really deep relationship with um the more than human community at a really young age because i felt deep solidarity with them that they live in they essentially adapted in this very in like this human centric construct of what a city is and they had to learn how to, you know, adapt, evade, um, be stealthy, how to like camouflage themselves within like human like buildings and sculptures. So I feel like they were the ones that really taught me how to like deal and like be within urban settings as a queer person, as well as as like an indigenous person. And they were the ones that really mirrored to me how to survive, um, including my relationship with my ancestors, which now as a child, I didn't know they were my ancestors at the time who were talking to me. But I think they were the ones that were really pointing to look at the more than human community. And mostly because both of my parents were pretty assimilated at that point, And they lost a lot of their connection to their roots or were wanting to be westernized. Um, quote unquote westernized and yeah so I feel like that has really infused queer nature a lot is this like well first of all the idea or the experience of adaptation and like having our more than human community really reflect brilliant resilience as well as you know our ancestors really teaching us that too and and how we can mirror that kind of like biomimicry like mirror that in our own lives and in our own survival stories of adaptation. Um, so I feel like queer nature really brings that perspective as well. And so to me, I mean, my relationship with the more than human community is what keeps me grounded in urban places. Um, I'll know when to shapeshift if I need to. Um, I'll know like if a place is really unsafe that I'll 
you know, put like an energetic force field around me of sorts, or I'll like pretend to be like a mossy rock or something and just like go into like stealth and camo mode or like what if something is called where I have to like really be a human, like very, very human, like urban human person, I can totally shapeshift into that too. So I feel like I learned a lot of my shape-shifting qualities that are also tied to my gender through my ancestors and my connection to the more-than-human community, which is so deep, deeply rooted in nature connection and my relationship with place. And so did you have anything to add in relationship to this? Yeah, I mean, one thing that really comes up for me, which Pinar touched upon, is like, what do I do to sort of ground myself in particularly urban settings that's been informed by this work? And I, I also think of the birds. I mean, one thing that I've discovered as sort of a curious person wandering outside, and this is something that's kind of beginning to be studied by so-called Western science, but is also been a part of indigenous science for pretty much ever. And this is basically the language of the birds and the fact that the birds are basically a, a, a living alarm system for natural communities. And if you think about like the worlds of activism and I mean, birds and some other species like squirrels, you know, we all have squirrels are, I mean, these are like nature's whistleblowers, literally. And um, there's actually some new, uh, sort of or new to like Western science, I guess you should say research around this that actually shows that these me that messages transmitted, like specifically alarms transmitted from birds through the forest can actually travel up to a hundred miles an hour. So, you know, talk about like a real like living Twitter feed that has like already evolved like way before Twitter was ever invented. And maybe there's a similar intelligence there or like a convergence with the way our technology kind of people often see it as a binary like nature and technology, but what perhaps the ways in which they converge and the brilliant ways that, you know, folks use social media. So that's kind of a whole other tangent. But yeah, I, when I'm in cities, I, I often realize how how rich they are with life but it's kind of harder to um with non-human life that is and but it can be harder to sort of see and notice particularly because of what Pinar mentioned around the marginalization and projections that we put are around um some urban adapted animals and i think that that says a lot about colonial culture the fact that oh like you know raccoons and opossums and now coyotes like they're, they're like taking over our spaces and rats. I mean, just think about rats or pigeons. I, I mean, pigeons are like, you know, these, a these animals are our ancestors and they're our mothers and our fathers. Um, and I say that because liter like, literally, like in my experience working with sheep, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've encountered the very like colonial and Western society trope that like sheep are dumb, sheep are mindless. And I mean, the, the truth in that is that sheep have an intelligence that threatens colonial culture because they have an intelligence of the flock, of the hive, um, of the tribe, perhaps. Um, and, you know, pigeons, it's the same thing. I mean, p pigeons are one of the oldest creatures to be domesticated or to come into a really intense uh, allyship and mutual relationship with humans. They used to be our form of sending messages to each other. 
and they they did so many things in ancient culture and now they're basically treated as pests uh flying rats or whatever and all of this to me is very queer like this just like when i go into the cities i like i pay attention to the pigeons and to what they're doing and to how they're adapting and i pay attention to you know the little songbirds and how they're figuring out how to get food or how to hide beneath picnic tables and artificial structures you know and I, I also pay attention to how the birds of prey and the hawks, how they adapt to like, you know, making nests in skyscrapers instead of cliffs. And yeah, and I guess, like I said, just this concept of birds, especially songbirds as sort of these whistleblowers. I mean, robins have like, robins actually have a specific call that literally means there's a hawk nearby. And a lot of people don't know it because they have they don't know that that call is from a robin because it doesn't sound like a typical robin call and it's very scouty and um it's interesting because i also feel like songbirds are really queer like they're like the males are so colorful and they sing and like it, there's just all these queer aesthetics that i feel with songbirds and then look they're also like these amazing badass whistleblowers and scouts for their people and their people are anyone who's around who's willing to listen. So I think that's what I would add. Thank you so much. So what approach do you all take um, in creating space through your workshops with queer nature? What are some of the approaches to investigating and aligning with nature that you all take? So if you wanted to start, perhaps? Yeah, um, well, I think that what we have done um, in the recent past and sort of is we, you know, we teach classes that are, I guess, encompassed around these words like, you know, survival skills, or we like to call them ancestral skills, because that's kind of a more, a more holistic term um, that makes it really personal. Whereas survival skills is like, you know, there's this modern obsession right now, like with like a dude or a girl or maybe a guy and a girl being like dropped, literally like airdropped or something like in like the middle of quote unquote nowhere or the middle of the quote unquote wilderness and they're naked and they have to survive. And that is like an obsession that like modern, like Western people have. And it's what's interesting is in the ancient world and in a lot of like current worlds that are very land-based no one would ever find themselves like dropped off in the middle of of somewhere where they didn't have any gear or like a kit like this this idea of like your gear or your kit is something that is so valuable to us and to me and so um like for example the Otzi who's the the man who was found in the ice who's i think about 5000 years old um up in Northern Europe or Scandinavia, I forget where. And he had, this dude was like kitted out. Like he had like arrows, he had a bow, he had like, you know, tools for like re-sharpening and creating new points. Like he had everything he needed to, to, to not just survive, but to thrive. And that's, I think that's sort of a philosophy we, we have, even though we also really do like to teach those like, oh shit, like survival skills, like sort of the shit hits the fan moment. Like that's that's necessary too, partially because there is a need for those skills in the culture and civilizations that we operate in, which are not necessarily of our choosing. We were born into this 
late capitalist experiment going on. And so there are skills like it is good to know how to boil water in an old beer bottle, you know what I mean? Um, or to make, you know, a, a sharp point with like, you know, a piece of glass or something. So that's, that's all there. But I think that one thing that we have been focusing on in our classes is some specific stuff like earth based or natural crafts, like you make something with your hands out of natural materials. That's kind of one vein that some of our workshops flow, flow along. And then there's sort of another, I guess the other main skill that we like to teach is um, tracking, wildlife tracking and sort of awareness or scouting skills. And those skills aren't as much something where you make something and take it home. Those are more around situational awareness and figuring out how to calibrate your mind and body to just like see more and recognize more. And that could include different kind of awareness practices or different ways of moving your body. It can also include how to camouflage yourself, how to be quiet in not just, you know, the the natural world, not just like purely natural settings, but also settings that are also, you know, urban or um, human created. But yeah, in, in a lot of our classes, we, you know, someone makes, we make something together and the working with the natural materials um, becomes a metaphor for a lot of different things. And um, I was I was wanting Pinar too to comment on this because I feel like perhaps they could get a little bit deeper into the meat of this stuff. Because I, for some reason, I feel like I'm kind of scratching the surface um, right now. So I don't know if you love if there's anything you're inspired around to share about sure. our, our space, like the space we create. Yeah, Pinar, let us know if you have anything to share as well, please. Yeah, so one other thing that I want to say um, regarding what So just mentioned, well, your, your, your question was our approach to creating space. And, um, and I feel like one of the approaches that we take is, um, you know, the protocol of sharing whose land we're on and whose territory we're on. And usually we're on Arapaho, Cheyenne and Ute territory. And um, that's actually the first thing that we pretty much mention. And it gives a lot of context to what we're going to be doing together and how we're in relationship with the materials and with the land. And one of the ways that we share it too is that it's, there's often this idea that like that natural history and indigenous history are different. And I feel like that also really fractions or fractures the idea or like essentially it creates and reinforces the separation between human and nature. And to me, I think that that's like a colonial tactic for, yeah, just removing place-based peoples. So we usually give the that, you know, that information of whose land we're on as like a track um, on the earth of like, this is the track on the earth that's ripple on this, on this place or on this ground that has dramatically impacted this place. And that's how we're all here pretty much, or most of us, um, maybe not everyone entirely. And that creates the tie to how nature connection is such an integral part of being in accountability uh, with not only First Nations peoples, but also with the more than human community who we're in relationship with. So it's not just indigenous history, um, it's also like a current issue of how are we in relationship with that knowledge? How are we in relation, like how are we keeping accountable with like, you know, 
being on Arapaho territory and how can we support, you know, indigenous sovereignty in that, in this way. Um, so oftentimes I'll try to like, I'm trying to learn Arapaho um, words. And I will say, you know, humbly that I know I mispronounce things often and that I'm still working with the pronunciations. But I just know that like for me to be an accountable person is to like refer to these beings um, with their first names. So yeah, so that's one of the approaches that we have for creating space with queer nature, as well as, you know, we always open up the space with like an introductory circle or an introduction circle. So after introducing the land, we introduce like the materials that we're working with, such as, you know, the last class that we had, we were making spoons. And so we introduced, you know, aspen and basswood and um, the, the materials we were working with and also bringing in relationship to our ancestral trees. I was burning some so-called Palo Santo. That's an ancestral tree of mine. And in the introductory circle, after our introducing the materials, we introduce ourselves and just ask, you know, people what, you know, what inspired them to come here and anything they want to share, including, you know, their you know, name and pronouns. And it is really amazing. Like once people speak, like I just feel like it just affirms the space in this beautiful way. It's a co-created space. It's not, you know, so and I like creating the space. It's like a collective uh, creation and a co-creation and yeah and I feel like when we start with you know introducing the land and introducing the material and ourselves it kind of also is like a way of decentering. to me it feels like decentering not only settler colonialism but also decentering um the idea of like human um just like this very human-centric way of being of like oh like this is like uh this space is just us people in like this, you know, on this land, but actually it's like we're with this land and in this place and we're in relationship and we're not just on, quote unquote, on land, <laughs> but we're like in it and being embraced with it, um, hopefully with, you know, in relationship. So yeah, I feel like a lot of the, the spaces that we create hopefully like um, spark this kind of interspecies accountability. And again, that kind of goes back to one of your former questions as to how like the queer community has remained very human centric. And I think that's something that I saw very deeply, again, growing up in, on Ohlone territory and going to San Francisco Gay Pride, like which usually always landed on my birthday, which was awesome. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I just noticed like, there's this like sea of people, like beautiful people and mostly white people, but, um, and just, um, just seeing like how you know, it is really beautiful. Like, and I will say, you know, as like a queer kid, like I was inspired by it, but I also felt really out of place because my community was more than human mostly. And I felt mostly seen by creatures and like um, with trees and like with rain and all these, all the more than human community or most of them. And so I just felt like there was this huge severance and disconnection from place happening. Mm. And, you know, again, like trauma has like this incredible intelligence where like, to me, if we can have this, I don't know, just like um, collective trauma that like the queer folks, and I'm, I'm definitely generalizing here, because um, there's like this macro collective queer trauma, but then there's also within that like very particular traumas of like two spirit people, 
Um, also, you know, QT BIPOCs or asexual folks or intersex people, but just like having this like bigger, bigger perspective of like the collective trauma, like that it makes sense that we're all like gathering in this way, in this like quote unquote pride, but we're not acknowledging whose land we're on and we're like walking on top of graves <laughs> right now. And, um, and I feel like, and you know, queer graves too, like there's a lot of, you know, there's so many gender variant people in, you know, in First Nations um, communities. And I just feel like if we don't recognize the first queers of the land that we're on, I feel like it's, I think it does a lot of, a lot more severance and trauma to our community. And I think, you know, I have a lot of compassion for like that, uh, you know, the growing awareness into that. And I think that I, you know, I feel like I, or at least with queer nature, a big part of that is like widening that not only the human, the narrative of human centricism, but also the narrative of settler colonialism that like, you know, gay pride um, or like, you know, the LGBTQ movement like started at a certain time on Turtle Island, whereas like it was actually far before that, you know? And um, yeah, and I feel like acknowledging that is super integral to at least with our work at Queer Nature. Yeah, I guess I would just add to that too, that to emphasize that part of our goal in creating spaces like through Queer Nature is, yeah, to like invite people to be in relationship with the more than human world and also to like affirm just through our experiences together how important emotional relationships with non-humans are. And because it's like, the majority of beings in the universe are non-human. So like if we if we aren't engaging in a relationship with them or being cur- even being curious about it, there's just such a huge lack and a huge um there's something huge being missed. And it seems like for us to do that as queer folks, there's something incredibly powerful in that because it sort of feels like this gathering of an alliance of like what Pinar said an interspecies alliance um and yeah it, they're just there just feels something so um potent about that and yeah just also the inviting people to see how nature is queer too and the amazing diversity that exists in the natural world and that in the natural world diversity and resilience are so interconnected and when there's monocultures Um, You know, and this is something that, you know, has been written about by one of my favorite authors, Vandana Shiva, which is that, you know, monocultures create such weakness, um, ecological weakness, and um, whereas diversity creates resilience. And this is something you see, too, going on this, like, macro scale with uh, colonial and imperial structures displacing, you know, native and indigenous systems of diversity and so to invite that into this world, this complicated world that we live in, to invite that wisdom in to the body, specifically to the bodies of queer folks, um, there's just something very like subversive about that. And, and one, one term we've come up with recently is um, belonging as resistance. And that's sort of, I think, such a good kind of motto for queer nature. Um, is that belonging and like learning how to radically belong through creating spaces where we're 
stewarding this collective story as queer human creatures and also being queer naturalists um, and queer artists, scientists in the natural world and with the natural world, there's something very, uh, yeah, just sub subversive about that and disruptive actually. Um, but it's in a, it's in a potent way. Like it's in, because, you know, I think in natural communities, transitions and disruptions can be very potent, you know, and like, I'm just thinking about all the amazingly rich imagery and mythos around volcanoes you know, to so many people or wildfires and the tending of fires. Um, and let's be like, let's be like a life giving fire together, I guess, is our our hope. <laughs> I think feeling feeling belonging is something that colonialism really strips from us, no matter what our heritage is. You know, it, it teaches us about rugged individualism and that we we need to in order to succeed, we need to do it ourselves. And that is that goes against nature in every form. <laughs> so I really appreciate you all um, reminding us of that space of belonging, you know. So as far as queer nature goes right now, I think this might be a great opportunity to talk about um, a project that you might have happening or coming up um, through queer nature that you might want to um, talk about or invite people to um, get involved in. Uh, Pinar, maybe do you want to start? Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, so there's several projects that we're working on right now, um, but I want to give voice to the one that's specific to queer youth. So one of the ones that we're working on um, in um, through Rites of Passage Journeys, which is in... Um, it's just east of Seattle, um, Washington. Uh, we're working on this rite of passage program for queer youth, 13 to 18 year old queer youth, called the Queer Mountain Quest. Um, it's uh, going to be two weeks long and going to be in the so-called Olympic Peninsula, which is um, Claw Lum territory. And we're going to be doing like a two-week backpacking trip where we're going to be having like a two-day solo piece to it. And there's going to be a lot of incredible spaces in that, re um, like not only emotional spaces, but also like the areas that we're going to go, like we're going to be on the coast and then we're also going to go up into the mountains and there's going to be incredible tracking and bird language and all this like stuff that, you know, whatever you're curious about and want to be immersed in the more than human world with queer folks. Like I, feel like this is just like an uh would would be an incredible program if you're interested yeah when you <laughs> when you say youth what what is the age range just so folks can know if they're included in that space yeah so 13 to 18 year old youth um queer youth and it's going to be from august 12th till the 
25th. And it's going to be um, sliding scale and no one is going to be turned away. Um, and we're working on getting gear to like, like a gear library so folks don't have to have the backpack um, or have to have a tent or, you know, so we're working on accessibility and we really want to have in particular call in like um, two spirit use and queer use of color and just, yeah, like any, yeah, just like really wanting to uplift queer um, youth voices in general. And um, we're going to definitely have a lot of like co-liberation and um, anti-oppression kind of a framework to it in like a really like a community based way in a really loving way. Um, So just like wanting folks who are very, you know, could be sensitive to like, oh, like, well, are they going to talk about this? Like, you know, what kind of awarenesses are they bringing? Like, um, if you're thinking that I would love for you to come because it sounds like the right program for you. (laughs) And um, yeah, and, you know, just really wanting to also take the moment to say that, like, you know, the the voices that one thing that we learned in the queer youth quest last June is that like we learned so much from the queer youth of like they were like expanding our perspectives as, you know, just like young um, queer adults like us. We just felt like we were very we learned so much from you all. So like just really wanting to like honor your knowledge and your gifts of um of who you are. Um, you're never too much. You're just enough. Yeah. So just wanting to name the uh, Queer Mountain Quest. So where do people find out uh, about it? Sign up? Um, is there a website or something you can share or a space they can navigate to look for to sign up? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, right now it's up on the right Rite of Passage Journeys website. So it's riteofpassagejourneys.org. And I can send it, um, like maybe we can have it, the link um, in the um, website for you all to have uh, access to that. Great. So did you want to add anything about uh, what's currently happening with you all for Queer Nature? Sure, yeah. Um, well, we ha- we do some, you know, day-long workshops in the Boulder, Denver area, and there are a few currently on the schedule um, coming up, um, just if people did want to know about that we've been doing a wildlife tracking series and it's kind of our first attempt at sort of a series of classes. Um, since we really, we really want to work more towards long-term mentorship and long-term nature-based mentorship, because that's such a big issue in sort of the wilderness therapy worlds and just any, any world where there's like these immersive intensive experiences and then it's like hard to integrate. And so we, we have been really excited to be doing this tracking series. Then, um, we're also doing a bird language class, in May, I think, and then a, a scouting, a queer scouting class in June. Scouting basically refers to camouflage, stealth, evasion, um, some tracking, sort of the arts of invisibility and sort of the art of belonging in a very um, radical way, so to speak. Um, and in that vein, we are really excited to be rolling out this collaboration with Rewild Portland this summer, um, hold a gathering called Echoes in Time that's uh, basically a big week-long ancestral skills jam. And we are going to be uh, teaching or facilitating probably a two-day-long, two-night, two-day-long queer intensive right before Echoes in Time, kind of on actually on the same land to just give this awesome queer blessing to the space. And that intensive is is actually uh, most likely going to be focusing on 
what we call queer scout craft awareness uh, practices, basically around this uh, motto that we were talking about around belonging as resistance. Like this is going to be a workshop where we actually really get into what that is and what and figure out what that means together because we don't have all the answers, but we just are wanting to create that space. And um, yeah, so the dates aren't we don't have them yet is is there a space where is there a space where you all will be updating when different dates i mean does queer nature have a website itself where all of this work can be found and is updated yeah we we try to put events that we're either that we're collaborating with another organization or holding ourselves we try to keep them updated on our website which is just queernature.org and as this, as we kind of hammer out the final details of this um, intensive in Portland, um, in collaboration with Rewild Portland, we will definitely be be putting it up. Hopefully, in the next couple weeks on on our site, and then it will, I'm assuming, also be available um, elsewhere, like on on Rewild Portland's site too. And you all have a very strong presence on social media as well. Um, uh, you have an Instagram. Can you share? Can you share how people can um, track you, <laughs> follow you? Yeah, if you want to find us on Instagram, um, our Instagram handle is Queer Nature, um, and our handle on Facebook is also Queer Nature. So pretty easy to find us. Um, you can also look up the hashtag Queer Nature and find us as well on Instagram. Do you all welcome people um, reaching out to you to connect? through like email or something. I know that oftentimes when people hear something and are inspired by the work, they might be inspired to possibly like approach collaboration, etc. Um, do you all welcome that? We love receiving emails. We're, we're not very good yet about being really prompt about responding since we don't have any sort of paid office hours. Like we're a pretty new entity at least like legally speaking like queer nature is an llc and we are not currently a nonprofit, and we so we're still working out so many things like with funding so i guess the point of me saying that is that unfortunately we um we sometimes you know can be delayed in responding to an email maybe like a week or so but we we definitely always welcome inquiries and just saying hi just wanting to connect and um, and yeah, we really look forward to hearing from anyone who's listening who, who might want to reach out for any reason. So yeah, email, I would say is probably the, the best way. And our, our email it's on our website, but, um, it's just queernature.info at gmail.com. Um, so yeah. Okay, Pinar, so what advice would you give to yourself 10 years ago? Yeah, so um, 10 years ago, I guess I was 20, almost 20. Um, I feel like the biggest thing that I would 
give myself. Um, so um, is, you know, more than you think, you know, and that your ancestors have your back. So yeah, just affirming knowings that might not be quote unquote logical, um, and also trusting imagery and dreams and conversations with um, parallel worlds as a neurodivergent person. What is your dream project? If you could do anything with no restrictions on time or money, what would you activate? Well, I have a personal project and then I have a community project. So my personal project, um, so I'm, th- I'm turning 30 um, soon. And one of the projects that I've been really thinking about is going to, back to my ancestral lands in the Andes and tracking and trailing uh, my ancestral ki- um, kin, the more than human community. Because I feel like that's a big part of how to become more accountable um, as a human person, as a human animal, as a creature. And this would also include reclaiming my ancestral tongue, uh, which is Wonka uh, Quechua. Um, yeah, so that's a big personal project I don't that I that I would really love to dream into at some point. And then as far as like a community project, I really want to like develop like a year-long immersion of ancestral skills and underworld guiding um, specific to particular populations like um, indigenous queers and two-spirit folk. And in particular folks who are like um, psychiatric survivors or like neurodivergent or suicide survivors, like I have a very deep, yeah, just a deep place in my heart as all of those things. Um, and uh, want to create space for folks in that way of, you know, relearning ancestral skills and connecting to the more than human world, as well as um, guiding solos for that population or those populations. Um, So do you have anything to add to that? Um, Just in terms of like, projects, like personal projects? Yeah, well, I think one thing we've been really dreaming into is we haven't done a lot of multi-day trips or experiences um we've done you know maybe one so far that we've kind of facilitated but one of our dreams um is to really combine um ancestral skills or sort of survival skills with kind of a rite of passage model um we, we just noticed that in the world of sort of outdoor stuff and nature connection there's you know you can like learn survival skills or you can like go do sort of a contemplative thing like you know sort of an some sort of solo or rite of passage and sometimes i don't know sometimes the latter can be sort of ungrounded and hard to reintegrate and then the former can be sort of too technical or like not or like kind of skimming over the the really vital and potent things that it, that are brought up when we reskill ourselves as humans and when we connect with the earth in these ways of like alliance building and belonging. And so one of our dreams is to kind of create sort of a queer survival trip. That's also a rite of passage that a group of queer folks can do as, as a group. And um, that's another big theme in what we teach is that, you know, we notice again and again, when working with queer folks in nature-based settings that, you know, so, so many times when we achieve things, it's together. And, you know, in other settings that I've been in, in the sort of survival skills world, it's kind of like, okay, like, you have to know how to make a friction fire, like, 
how to make a friction fire like by yourself, which is pretty physically challenging for some people. And in our in one of our queer classes where we did we focused on friction fire, almost everyone in the class like created a coal or it's called busting a coal. And almost everyone did it with the help of another person where they were like in tandem operating the bow drill portion of the friction fire kit. And all those flames were born out of like this, like having each other's back. And like our one of our dreams is to create sort of an intensive or like a sort of flagship offering that is maybe a week long where we're just like out in the in the forest, like learning how to survive and thrive with with very little kind of artificial materials, we'll just say, and really having acknowledging that as an initiation, you know, and and really like holding that in, in a good way and in a in a clear way for people because it's something to celebrate. And so that's that's one of our big dreams on the horizon that we actually haven't really shared with many people yet. So thank you for asking. And then we also, well, I, I have kind of a passion around emergency medicine. I'm a wilderness medic and a EMT, and um, I've gotten really passionate about emergency response and in particular direct action and bystander response. Um, I mean, a huge... In- influence for me was, um, you know, the Pulse nightclub shooting and all those queer people who were killed. And, um, it, you know, it, we're, we're wanting to weave that into our work with queer nature too, in a way, like we really want to empower queer people to, um, be able to respond and protect themselves because the world we're living in is getting like increasingly risky. And, and, um, there's a lot of risks out there. And so one of my passions is continuing to integrate um, kind of emergency medicine into queer nature um, to con- to continue to give the folks we work with more tools to just feel safe and also f- not just feel safe, but feel prepared because that's kind of a whole other thing. And I feel like we do focus a lot on safety in this world that we operate in. And let's also focus on preparedness and being a protector of our people. That's so important. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what type of support do you all need? I mean, I know you had mentioned that you're just coming into being as queer nature, as holding this space and and growing. So as two people working collaboratively, and then working collaboratively with other organizations. Can you share what type of support you all need? What what do you need if this could be a call out to to your greater communities who you have yet to meet? How can we support you? Yeah, it's a great question. This is so speaking. And um, I think that one thing that comes to mind is like, I think a lot of people think of like funding as being the big thing that they need. And we do need that eventually but we're we're so new at in terms of being our own entity that we really need to like get in line and figure out what like what our budget a budget would even how that would even be broken down and what it would be for so we've had some really generous folks reach out and be like hey I want to help you fundraise and right now it's like still a little bit it's still a little bit early for that it's, we're both such slow moving turtle like beings and in, in these were in these systems, these bureaucratic and logistical systems, and we will need that in the future. And so be on the lookout for a call out for that. I would say what's more immediate is 
we we want to collaborate with other organizations, especially nonprofits. Um, you know, partially because you know we can we could partner in order to get grant money. That's what we do with Women's Wilderness in Boulder. And that's just been really fun. Like we actually really like like collaborating on grants. Um, that might be kind of weird, but we do. So, and yeah, so collaborations with other organizations and also just collaborations with folks who might have access to land where they <clears throat> want to host us. We actually are looking into, we're beginning steps on a journey to be stewards of what could be a land base for queer nature, but all of that is pretty still up in the air. And even when that, when and if that does happen, we always want to be able to be mobile and travel and come teach or co-facilitate workshops uh, where where other people are, where where they might want to bring us. And so I would say, like, if you're moved to reach out for that to host us or to collaborate, that would be really exciting. Thank you for sharing that. So um, for our final thing, it's our soapbox moment. So Pinar, if you could say one thing to the world using this podcast as your platform, what would it be? Yeah, I want to speak specifically to the queer youth on um, the reses and like indigenous queer youth in particular and queer youth of color. Essentially, I want to say directly to you all to like stay here with us, um, especially the folks like really struggling to stay here and be seen, that we need your gifts of seeing and being and in betweenness and your particular magic in this world, that you are essentially budding elders in our communities. Um, and as you know, unfortunately, with the history of settler colonialism, a lot of our a lot of our two-spirit and gender non-conforming um, elders have been targeted. And so I know that we have a lack of, but we also have so many, like, essentially that we need each other right now and that I need you and um, to stay here and be your brilliant selves. You don't even have to do anything besides just be alive in this world and show your brilliance just like the songbirds do just by existing. So, yeah, I have so much love and deep respect for you. And so, um, do you have anything you'd like to say for a soapbox moment, if you could say one thing to the world using this as your platform? What would it be? It's interesting because I notice when you ask that question, it brings up these interesting feelings because I, I feel like I've spoken a lot on this podcast like about sort of soapboxy things and I really feel a sensitivity around um, my position as, you know, a, like a white person with, you know, a different degrees of emotional slash educational privilege. And I think my soapbox moment would be to just like fully back up everything Panar has said, not that that is needed, but my soapbox moment isn't a moment, it's an action of like putting my hand on my spouse's back and like being so proud of the work they're doing in the world and just wanting to support that in any way I can. And um, just having my hands out open um, to, to others out there who, to whom Pinar was speaking. Um, that's all. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. Thank you both for sharing and um, for being a part of this project and for our new friendships and hopefully future collaborations. I really, I really am humbled by the work you all are doing. And I feel like I could have talked to you all for hours and still only scratched the surface of the incredible like ideologies and ethos that you're, you're remembering. So um, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. It was opportunity. Yeah, it's been Scusa, ho sì, cerchi.